Chapter 8, Part 3 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Banda Oriental and Patagonia, Part 3. The zoology of Patagonia is as limited as its flora. On the arid plains a few black beetles, Hedamorera, might be seen slowly crawling about, and occasionally a lizard darted from side to side. Of birds we have three carrion hawks, and in the valleys a few finches and insect feeders. An ibis, Theristicus melanops, a species said to be found in central Africa, is not uncommon on the most desert parts. In their stomachs I found grasshoppers, cicadae, small lizards, and even scorpions. At one time of the year these birds go in flocks, at another in pairs. Their cry is very loud and singular, like the neighing of the guanaco. The guanaco, or wild llama, is the characteristic quadruped of the plains of Patagonia. It is the South American representative of the camel of the east. It is an elegant animal, in a state of nature, with a long, slender neck and fine legs. It is very common over the whole of the temperate parts of the continent, as far south as the islands near Cape Horn. It generally lives in small herds, from half a dozen to thirty in each. But on the banks of St. Cruz we saw one herd which must have contained at least five hundred. They are generally wild and extremely wary. Mr. Stokes told me that he one day saw through a glass a herd of these animals, which evidently had been frightened, and were running away at full speed. Although their distance was so great that he could not distinguish them with his naked eye, the sportsman frequently receives the first notice of their presence by hearing from a long distance their peculiar shrill, neighing note of alarm. If he then looks attentively, he will probably see the herd standing in a line on the side of some distant hill. On approaching nearer, a few more squeals are given, and off they set, at an apparently slow but really quick canter, along some narrow beaten track, to a neighboring hill. If, however, by chance, he abruptly meets a single animal, or several together, they will generally stand motionless and intently gaze at him, then perhaps move on a few yards, turn round, and look again. What is the cause of this difference in their shyness? Do they mistake a man in the distance for their chief enemy, the puma? Or does curiosity overcome their timidity? That they are curious is certain. For if a person lies on the ground and plays strange antics, such as throwing up his feet in the air, they will almost always approach, by degrees, to reconnoiter him. It was an artifice that was repeatedly practiced by our sportsmen with success, and it had, moreover, the advantage of allowing several shots to be fired, which were all taken as part of the performance. On the mountains of Tierra del Fuego, I have more than once seen a guanaco, on being approached, not only neigh and squeal, but prance and leap about in the most ridiculous manner apparently in defiance as a challenge. These animals are very easily domesticated, and I have seen some thus kept in northern Patagonia near a house, 
though not under any restraint. They are in this state very bold, and readily attack a man, by striking him from behind with both knees. It is asserted that the motive for these attacks is jealousy on account of their females. The wild guanacos, however, have no idea of defense, and even a single dog will secure one of these large animals till a huntsman can come up. In many of their habits, they are like sheep in a flock. Thus, when they see men approaching in several directions on horseback, they soon become bewildered and know not which way to run. This greatly facilitates the Indian method of hunting, for they are thus easily driven to a central point and are encompassed. The guanacos readily take to the water. Several times at Port Valdez they were seen swimming from island to island. Byron, in his voyage, says he saw them drinking salt water. Some of our officers likewise saw a herd apparently drinking the briny fluid from a salina near Cape Blanco. I imagine in several parts of the country, if they do not drink salt water, they drink none at all. In the middle of the day, they frequently roll in the dust in saucer-shaped hollows. The males fight together. Two one day passed quite close to me, squealing and trying to bite each other, and several were shot, with their hides deeply scored. Herds sometimes appear to set out on exploring parties. At Bahia Blanca, where, within thirty miles of the coast, these animals are extremely unfrequent. I one day saw the traces of thirty or forty, which had come in a direct line to a muddy salt-water creek. They must have perceived that they were approaching the sea, for they had wheeled with the regularity of cavalry, and had returned back in as straight a line as they had advanced. The guanacos have one singular habit, which is to me quite inexplicable, namely, that on successive days they drop their dung in the same defined heap. I saw one of these heaps, which was eight feet in diameter, and was composed of a large quantity. This habit, according to M. A. de Orbingy, is common to all the species of the genus. It is very useful to the Peruvian Indians, who use the dung for fuel, and are thus saved the trouble of collecting it. The guanacos appear to have favorite spots for lying down to die. On the banks of the St. Cruz, in certain circumscribed spaces, they were generally bushy and all near the river. The ground was actually white with bones. On one such spot, I counted between ten and twenty heads. I particularly examined the bones. They did not appear as some scattered ones which I had seen, gnawed or broken, as if dragged together by beasts of prey. The animals in most cases must have crawled before dying. Beneath and amongst the bushes, Mr. Bino informs me that during a former voyage he observed the same circumstances on the banks of the Rio Gallegos. I do not at all understand the reason of this, but I may observe that the wounded guanacos at the St. Cruz invariably walked towards the river. At St. Jago in the Cape de Verde Islands, I remember having seen in a ravine a retired corner covered with bones of the goat. We at the time exclaimed that it was the burial ground of all the goats in the island. I mention these trifling circumstances because, in certain cases, they might explain the occurrence of a number of uninjured bones in a cave, or buried under alluvial accumulations, and likewise the cause 
why certain animals are more commonly embedded than others in sedimentary deposits. One day the yawl was sent under the command of Mr. Schaeffer's, with three days' provisions to survey the upper part of the harbor. In the morning we searched for some watering places mentioned in an old Spanish chart. We found one creek, at the head of which there was a trickling rill, the first we had seen, of brackish water. Here the tide compelled us to wait several hours, and in the interval I walked some miles to the interior. The plain, as usual, consisted of gravel, mingled with soil, resembling chalk in appearance, but very different from it in nature. From the softness of these materials, it was worn away into many gullies. There was not a tree, and, excepting the guanaco, which stood on the hilltop, a watched sentinel over its herd, scarcely an animal or a bird. All was stillness and desolation. Yet in passing over these scenes, without one bright object near, an ill-defined but strong sense of pleasure is vividly excited. One asked how many ages the plain has thus lasted, and how many more it was doomed thus to continue. None can reply. All seems eternal now. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue which teaches awful doubt. In the evening we sailed a few miles further up, and then pitched the tents for the night. By the middle of the next day the yawl was aground, and from the shoalness of the water could not proceed any higher. The water being found partly fresh, Mr. Schaeffer's took the dingy and went up two or three miles further, where she also grounded, but in a freshwater river. The water was muddy, and though the stream was most insignificant in size, it would be difficult to account for its origin except from the melting snow on the Cordillera. At the spot where we bivouacked, we were surrounded by bold cliffs and steep pinnacles of porphyry. I do not think I ever saw a spot which appeared more secluded from the rest of the world than this rocky crevice in the wide plain. The second day after our return to the anchorage, a party of officers and myself went to ransack an old Indian grave which I had found on the summit of a neighboring hill. Two immense stones, each probably weighing at least a couple of tons, had been placed in front of a ledge of rock about six feet high. At the bottom of the grave, on the hard rock, there was a layer of earth about a foot deep, which must have been brought up from the plain below. Above it, a pavement of flat stones was placed, on which others were piled, so as to fill up the space between the ledge and the two great blocks. To complete the grave, the Indians had contrived to detach from the ledge a huge fragment and to throw it over the pile so as to rest on the two blocks. We undermined the grave on both sides, but could not find any relics or even bones. The latter probably had decayed long since, in which case the grave must have been of extreme antiquity, for I found in another place some smaller heaps beneath which a very few crumbling fragments could yet be distinguished as having belonged to a man. Falconer states that where an Indian dies he is buried, but that subsequently his bones are carefully taken up and carried, let the distance be ever so great, to be deposited near the seacoast. This custom, I think, may be accounted for by recollecting 
that before the introduction of horses, these Indians must have led nearly the same life as the Fugians now do, and therefore generally have resided in the neighborhood of the sea. The common prejudice of lying where one's ancestors have lain would make the now roaming Indians bring the less perishable part of their dead to their ancient burial ground on the coast. January ninth, 1834. Before it was dark, the Beagle anchored in the fine spacious harbor of Port St. Julian, situated about 110 miles to the south of Port Desire. We remained here eight days. The country is nearly similar to that of Port Desire, but perhaps more sterile. One day a party accompanied Captain Fritzroy on a long walk round the head of the harbor. We were eleven hours without tasting any water, and some of the party were quite exhausted. From the summit of the hill, since well named Thirsty Hill, a fine lake was spied, and two of the party proceeded with concerted signals to show whether it was fresh water. What was our disappointment to find a snow-white expanse of salt, crystallized in great cubes? We attributed our extreme thirst to the dryness of the atmosphere, but whatever the cause might be, we were exceedingly glad, late in the evening, to get back to the boats. Although we could nowhere find, during our whole visit, a single drop of fresh water, yet some must exist, for, by an odd chance, I found on the surface of the salt water, near the bed of the bay, a Kalimbites, not quite dead, which must have lived in some not far distant pool. Three other insects, a Cincidella, like Hybrida, a Semindis, and a Harpalas, which all live on muddy flats, occasionally overflowed by the sea, and one other found dead on the plain, complete the list of the beetles. A good-sized fly, Tabinus, was extremely numerous and tormented us by its painful bite. The common horsefly, which is so troublesome in the shady lanes of England, belongs to this same genus. We here have the puzzle that so frequently occurs in the case of mosquitoes. On the blood of what animals do these insects commonly feed? The guanaco is nearly the only warm-blooded quadruped, and it is found in quite inconsiderable numbers compared with the multitude of flies. The geology of Patagonia is interesting. Differently from Europe, where the tertiary formations appear to have accumulated in bays, here along hundreds of miles of coast we have one great deposit, including many tertiary shells, all apparently extinct. The most common shell is a massive gigantic oyster, sometimes even a foot in diameter. These beds are covered by others of a peculiar soft white stone including much gypsum, and resembling chalk, but really of a pumaceous nature. It is highly remarkable from being composed to at least one-tenth of its bulk of infusoria. Professor Ehrenberg has already ascertained in it thirty oceanic forms. This bed extends for five hundred miles along the coast, and probably for a considerable greater distance. At Port St. Julian, its thickness is more than 800 feet. These white beds are everywhere capped by a mass of gravel, forming probably one of the largest beds of shingle in the world. It certainly extends from near the Rio Colorado to between 600 and 700 nautical miles southward. At Santa Cruz, a river a little south of St. Julian, it reaches to the foot of the Cordillera 
halfway up the river. Its thickness is more than two hundred feet. It probably everywhere extends to this great chain, whence the well-rounded pebbles of porphyry have been derived. We may consider its average breadth at two hundred miles, and its average thickness at about fifty feet. This great bed of pebbles, without including the mud necessarily derived from the attrition, was piled into a mound. It would form a great mountain chain. When we consider that all these pebbles, countless as the grains of sand in the desert, have been derived from the snow falling in masses of rock on the old coastlines and banks of rivers, and that these fragments have been dashed into smaller pieces, and that each of them have since slowly been rolled, rounded, and far transported, the mind is stupefied in thinking over the long, absolutely necessary lapse of years. Yet all this gravel has been transported and probably rounded subsequently to the deposition of the white beds, and logged subsequently to the underlying beds with tertiary shells. Everything in this southern continent has been affected on a grand scale. The land from the Rio Plata to Tierra del Fuego, a distance of 1,200 miles, has been raised in mass, and in Patagonia to a height of between 300 and 400 feet, within the period of the now existing seashells. The old and weathered shells left on the surface of the upraised plain still partially retain their colors. The uprising movement has been interrupted by at least eight long periods of rest, during which the sea ate deeply back into the land, forming at successive intervals the long lines of cliffs or escarpments which separate the different plains as they rise like steps one behind the other. The elevatory movement and the eating back power of the sea during the periods of rest have been equable over the long lines of the coast, for I was astonished to find that the step-like plains stand at nearly corresponding heights at far distant points. The lowest plain is ninety feet high, and the highest, which I ascended near the coast, is nine hundred and fifty feet, and of this only relics are left in the form of flat gravel-capped hills. The upper plain of Santa Cruz slopes up to a height of three thousand feet at the foot of the Cordillera. I have said that within the period of existing seashells, Patagonia has been upraised three hundred to four hundred feet. I may add that within the period when icebergs transported boulders over the upper plain of Santa Cruz, the elevation has been at least 1,500 feet. Nor has Patagonia been affected only by upward movements. The extinct tertiary shells from Port St. Julian and Santa Cruz cannot have lived, according to Professor E. Forbes, in a greater depth of water than from 40 to 250 feet but they are now covered with sea-deposited strata from 800 to 1,000 feet in thickness. Hence the bed of the sea on which these shells once lived must have sunk downwards several hundred feet to allow of the accumulation of the superincumbent strata. What a history of geological change does the simply constructed coast of Patagonia reveal? At Port St. Julian, in some red mud capping, the gravel on the ninety-feet plain, I found half the skeleton of the Macrucenia patachonia, a remarkable quadruped, full as large as a camel. 
It belongs to the same division as the Pachydermata, with the rhinoceros, tapir, and paleotherium, but in the structure of the bones of its long neck it shows a clear relation to the camel, or rather to the guanaco and llama. From recent seashells, being formed on two of the higher-stepped formed plains, which must have been mottled and upraised before the mud was deposited in which the Macrochenia was entombed, it is certain that this curious quadruped lived long after the sea was inhabited by its present shells. I was at first much surprised how a large quadruped could so lately have subsisted in latitude 49 degrees 15 minutes on these wretched gravel plains with their stunted vegetation, but the relationship of the Macrochenia to the Guanaco, now an inhabitant of the most sterile parts, partly explains this difficulty. The relationship, though distant, between the Macrochenia and the Guanaco, between the Toxodon and the Capybara, the closer relationship, the many extinct edentata and the living sloths, ant-eaters, and armadillos, now so eminently characteristic of South American zoology, and the still closer relationship between the fossil and living species of the Cetimes and Hydrocaris, are most interesting facts. This relationship is shown wonderfully, as wonderfully as between the fossil and extinct marsupial animals of Australia, by the great collections lately brought to Europe from the caves of Brazil by M. M. Lund and Clausen. In this collection there are extinct species of all the thirty-two genera excepting four of the terrestrial quadrupeds now inhabiting the provinces in which the caves occur, and the extinct species are much more numerous than those now living. There are fossil ant-eaters, armadillos, tapirs, peccaries, guanacos, opossums, and numerous South American gnars and monkeys, and other animals. This wonderful relationship in the same continent between the dead and the living will, I do not doubt, hereafter throw more light on the appearance of organic beings on our earth and their disappearance from it than any other class of facts. It is impossible to reflect on the changed state of the American continent without the deepest astonishment. Formerly it must have swarmed with great monsters, now we find mere pygmies, compared with the antecedent allied races. If Buffon had known of the gigantic sloth and armadillo-like animals, and of the last pachydermata, he might have said, with a greater semblance of truth than the creative force in America had lost its power, rather than it had never possessed great vigor. The greater number, if not all, of these extinct quadrupeds lived at a late period, and were the contemporaries of most of the existing seashells. Since they lived, no very great change in the form of the land can have taken place. What, then, has exterminated so many species and whole genera? The mind, at first, is irresistibly hurried into the belief of some great catastrophe, but thus, to destroy animals, both large and small, in southern Patagonia, in Brazil, on the Cordillera of Peru, in North America up to Bering Straits, we must shake the entire framework of the globe. An examination, moreover, of the geology of La Plata and Patagonia leads to the belief that all the features of the land result from slow and gradual change. It appears from the character of the fossils in Europe, Asia, Australia, and in North and South America,
that these conditions, which favor the life of the larger quadrupeds, were lately coextensive with the world. What those conditions were, no one has yet even conjectured. It could hardly have been a change of temperature, which at about the same time destroyed the inhabitants of tropical, temperate, and arctic latitudes on both sides of the globe. In North America, we positively know from Mr. Lyell that the large quadrupeds lived subsequently to that period, when boulders were brought into latitudes at which icebergs now never arrive. From conclusive but indirect reasons, we may feel sure that in the southern hemisphere the Macrochenia also lived long subsequently to the ice-transporting boulder period. Did man, after his first inroad into South America, destroy, as has been suggested, the unwieldy Megatherium and the other Edentata? We must at least look into some other cause for the destruction of the little Tucatuco at Bahia Blanca, and of the many fossil mice and other small quadrupeds in Brazil. No one will imagine that a drought, even far severer than those which cause such losses in the provinces of La Plata, could destroy every individual of every species from southern Patagonia to Bering Straits. What shall we say of the extinction of the horse? Did those plains fail of pasture, which have since been overrun by thousands and hundreds of thousands of the descendants of the stock introduced by the Spaniards? Have the subsequently introduced species consumed the food of the great antecedent races? Can we believe that the capybara has taken the food of the toxodon, the guanaco of the macrochenia, the existing small edentata of their numerous gigantic prototypes? Certainly, no fact in the long history of the world is so startling as the wide and repeated exterminations of its inhabitants. Nevertheless, if we consider the subject under another point of view, it will appear less perplexing. We do not steadily bear in mind how profoundly ignorant we are of the conditions of existence of every animal, nor do we always remember that some check is constantly preventing the too rapid increase of every organized being left in a state of nature. The supply of food on average remains constant, yet the tendency in every animal to increase by propagation is geometrical and its surprising effects have nowhere been more astonishingly shown than in the case of the European animals run wild during the last few centuries in America. Every animal in a state of nature regularly breeds, yet in a species long established any great increase in numbers is obviously impossible and must be checked by some means. We are nevertheless seldom able with certainty to tell in any given species at which period of life or at what period of the year, or whether only at long intervals the check fails, or again, what is the precise nature of the check. Hence probably it is that we feel so little surprise at one of two species closely allied in habits, being rare, and the other abundant in the same district, or again, that one should be abundant in one district, and another, filling the same place in the economy of nature, should be abundant in a neighboring district, differing very little in its conditions. If asked how this is, one immediately replies that it is determined by some slight difference in climate, food, 
or the number of enemies, yet how rarely, if ever, can we point out the precise cause and manner of action of the check. We are therefore driven to the conclusion that the causes generally quite inappreciable by us determine whether a given species shall be abundant or scanty in numbers. In the cases where we can trace the extinction of a species through man, either wholly or in one limited district, we know that it becomes rarer and rarer and is then lost. It would be difficult to point out any just distinction between a species destroyed by man or by the increase of its natural enemies. The evidence of rarity preceding extinction is more striking in the successive tertiary strata, as remarked by several able observers. It has often been found that a shell very common in a tertiary stratum is now most rare, and has even long been thought extinct. If then, as appears probable, species first become rare and then extinct, if the too rapid increase of every species, even the most favored, is steadily checked, as we must admit, though how and when it is hard to say. And if we see, without the smallest surprise, though unable to assign the precise reason, one species abundant and another closely allied species rare in the same district, why should we feel such great astonishment at the rarity being carried one step further to extinction? An action going on on every side of us, and yet barely appreciable, must surely be carried a little further without exciting our observation. Who would feel any great surprise at hearing that the megalonyx was formerly rare, compared with a megatherium, or that one of the fossil monkeys was few in number compared with one of the now living monkeys? And yet, in this comparative rarity, we should have the plainest evidence of less favorable conditions for their existence. To admit that species generally become rare before they become extinct, to feel no surprise at the comparative rarity of one species with another, and yet to call in some extraordinary agent and to marvel greatly when a species ceases to exist, appears to me much the same as to admit that sickness in the individual is the prelude to death, to feel no surprise at sickness, but when the sick man dies to wonder and to believe that he died through violence. End of chapter 8